if you have a story you would like to hear featured on this podcast, please go to AsTheRavenDreams.com and click the button to submit your story. Also, if the platform you're listening on has the option to rate this podcast, please consider doing so. And thank you. I don't know where this story fits, so I do apologize for not including a topic, but I know that you've done stories similar to this in the past, so I thought that you may like it. I don't think it's technically a glitch or anything like that, but it's something similar to some of those stories. Either way, I know you'll find a way to fit it somewhere. One point of note is that this story was hold back to me, so sorry if my details are all over or a bit sparse. The story is about me from whenever I was three and four. There were several occurrences that happened, but I'm only going to write about the ones that really stood out to me and that make for the best stories. One of these was told to me by my grandmother and the other by my mother. The first of these two stories happened when I was three. Both of my parents had to work to make ends meet, so they always dropped me off at my grandmother's house in the morning, and I would spend most of the day with her. I loved going to my grandma's house most mornings, but according to them, on this particular day, I was in an absolutely awful mood. Like to the point that I was mean and aggressive the whole time that I was getting up and getting ready. My mom tried to talk to me and ask me why I was so mad, and I just kept trying to say something, but every time I would, I would start bawling and she couldn't understand me. It got to the point where she was trying to hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay, but I kept pushing her and telling her that I didn't want a hug. She relented and just finished getting me ready, and when she got me to my grandma's house, she warned her that I was in a bad mood, but my grandma said that it was obvious because of how I was just scowling. My grandma said that the whole morning, I was just sitting there on the couch and watching the news, and that I was holding back crying for the longest time. After a while of this, my grandma came over and sat with me on the couch, and asked me why I was so upset. Apparently when she asked me, I was more willing to talk about it, and I told her that I knew about being born. She said that it didn't make sense, and she asked what I knew about being born, and I told her that I knew about before I was born and that being born hurts. She tried to press me a bit more on this, and I just kept saying that being born hurt, and that I was scared. She assumed that this was just some weird little kid thing, and after a while, I didn't seem to want to talk about it. Later that day, I had apparently calmed down because I approached her, and I asked her if she knew about being born. She asked what I meant, and I asked her if she knew about how much it hurt to be born again. It was the again part that confused her, 
but she mentioned that she didn't know what it was like to be born because adults don't remember that far back. I looked her straight in the face and told her that I remembered it. And I then started telling her about how it was warm before I was born, that I was sleepy all the time, and then one day it all hurt, and I was born. Apparently, I kind of freaked her out when I told her this, because this wasn't normal for a three-year-old to talk about. But she just kind of nodded along and asked me to tell her more. I just kept telling her the same thing about how much it hurt, and as I was explaining it, I kept starting to cry, but I would stop myself. She told my mom about this, and my mom had no idea where I got the idea from, so they just had to pretty much accept that I was a little weirdo talking about weird things. And that was that. I had apparently mentioned this once or twice more, but it wasn't until I was four that things got really weird. One day, I was home with my parents, and I had told my mom that I wanted to talk to her. She came into my bedroom and said that I looked really sad, and she asked me if I was okay. I told her that I wasn't okay, and she asked me what was wrong, and I then apparently just hit her with a, my life before was really sad. She laughed and told me that I didn't have a life before, that I've always been her son, and I came back with, no, I mean my life before I was your son, my life before I died. She was a bit shocked by this, again thinking that no four-year-old should be making these comments, but she wanted to see what I had to say. So, she asked me about my life before. I told her that, before I was born, before I was her son, I was an old man named John. I said that when I was John, I had hurt a lot of people, and that before I died, all I could do was cry because nobody loved me. I told her that I had a daughter that didn't love me, and that my wife didn't love me either, but that she had died first, so I was all alone when I stopped being John. I described John as being this angry and depressed old man that did nothing but sit and watch the TV, and that he was always angry at the world. And every night before he went to bed, he would ask God to fix it all, but he never did. I gave her a lot of detail about this seemingly fictional old man, to the point that she started to think about whether I had watched something or was told about him. She asked me where I had heard about John, and I told her that I didn't hear about him, that I was him. I said that before I was me, I was John, and that when I was John, I was always so sad. She told me that she got a bit curious about what I would say, so she asked me what happened to John, and I told her that my last day as John was painful. I told her that I woke up, and I went to get my coffee, and when I got to the kitchen, I felt a pain in my stomach and fell down. When I fell down, I couldn't get back up, and I just laid on the floor thinking about how nobody would ever save me. I told her that, while I was laying on the floor, I kept telling myself that I needed to get up, 
but I never did. And after a while, I started getting really tired. Then, after I got tired, I fell asleep, and I didn't wake up. At this point, she wasn't sure what to say because her four-year-old son had just told her this long, detailed story about an old man that was miserable at the end of his life and apparently died on his kitchen floor. She gave me a big hug and told me that it was okay, that I wasn't John anymore. I told her that I knew I wasn't John because I was born again as me, and that I wouldn't do the same thing as John because I had learned my lesson. And that was pretty much the end of it. When I was that age, I apparently had these really vivid memories of before I was born, when I was born, and apparently remembered parts of my past life that I had. I don't remember any of this now. It was way too long ago, obviously, but my mom and grandma remember how emotional I was during all of this, and how I told them details that no young child should or would know. And they firmly believe that I was telling them about some sort of previous life that I'd lived. My parents are big believers in the supernatural, so they've always believed me, even though I was seemingly just a kid rambling. I don't know what to think of it, but after hearing all the stories about the crazy things that happened in our reality, I have to say that I'm more of a believer than not, and part of me wishes that I could remember all of those old memories. If for nothing else, I would like to just know what it was that I saw in my mind as a little kid. When I was in my early 20s, around 2010, I lived alone in a ground floor apartment in what I would say was a decent part of my hometown. It was a bit of a humble but comfortable place, and honestly, I was loving living alone. I didn't dislike living with my parents, I get along well enough with them, but I'm more of a loner and I like to live within my own confines, not someone else's. For the entire first year, things went really well in my apartment. I loved the area, I'd furnished it the way I liked it, and I was happy. Then, near immediately after I signed my second year's lease, things started happening that made me reconsider whether or not I was really safe. At first, the things that would happen were incredibly subtle. I would come home from work and would find various things that seemed out of place, but that I couldn't be sure about. The first thing was one day when I got home and found my front door was unlocked. I kind of freaked out a bit at first, but as I thought about it, that morning I was in a super rush because I was running late and it was wholly possible that I forgot to lock it. I went in and checked everything, and as far as I could tell, nothing had been taken or moved. I chalked it up to a, hey dummy, that was stupid, moment, and moved on. A couple days later, I came home to my door being unlocked again, and again was incredibly mad at myself for having left it unlocked like that. However, when I went inside to make sure nothing was missing, it pretty 
quickly clicked that it wasn't my doing. When I walked in, I noticed that the lamp in the corner of my living room was turned on, which to most people wouldn't be a huge deal, but to me, it was a massive issue. I never used that lamp. It was a room lamp from my room at my parents' house that I took so that they didn't have to deal with it, but I hadn't had to use it because the living room has a ceiling light. I'd put it in a corner behind an extra chair because it kind of looked nice, but I never used it. I checked the rest of the apartment, but again, there was nothing missing. I actually went across the hall and asked one of the neighbors if they saw anyone coming or going from my apartment that day, and they didn't recall anyone being there. I mentioned the whole thing, and they were a bit shocked, but again, they couldn't give me any information. I ended up calling the main office to let them know, and they mentioned that it could have been maintenance, because they were doing pest control on my building at some point that week, but that they should have left a note if it was them. I told them that there was no note on my door, and that my neighbor said that they hadn't seen anyone, which made me think it wasn't the maintenance crew. They told me that they would ask the crew and see if it was them, and then told me to call them back if it happened again, and that they would figure out a way to get the situation taken care of. And, of course, something did happen. One night, I got home, and when I opened my door, I found an envelope on the floor on the other side of said door like it had been slid under. I initially assumed it was a note from the office or the maintenance crew, but normally they just tape those to the front door, not slide them under. I grabbed it, put my stuff down, and opened the letter to see what they had to say, and it made my blood run cold when I read it. It was a typed and unsigned note that said, You look so peaceful when you sleep. I was freaking out in my head. Who the hell had been watching me sleep? Had someone actually been watching me, or was this some kind of screwed up prank? There was no evidence that anyone had been in my apartment beyond the lamp and my door being unlocked twice, which to me was a mountain of evidence, but to anyone on the outside could just be coincidences. Of course, this letter was a big red flag, screaming, I'm watching you. But who the hell was the person that typed it? After the letter, I started taking precautions with everything in my apartment. I double-checked all the locks on the windows, I kept all my curtains and blinds closed, I put Christmas bells on every single door so that I could tell that they were opened, and I bought a metal baseball bat that sat right next to my bed just in case. I had also reported the letter to the office, who made a police report with my information, and they had an officer that would circle the area multiple times a day to see if they could find anyone suspicious. Despite this, things would still end up happening. I would come home to find my fridge open, my bathroom sink running, the books on my bookshelf removed and piled on the floor. I seriously thought I was going insane. I begged the rental office to change the locks on my door. I told them every single thing that had happened, 
and they were completely unhelpful. Their solution to figuring it out was telling me to get a camera because they couldn't do anything else. This was my home. I was supposed to feel safe here, and the company responsible for that safety was basically telling me that I was out of luck. I was starting to feel depressed and anxious all the time because I was thinking that this person was going to escalate, and eventually they were going to hurt me. Or worse. I hit a wall mentally. I wasn't sure what to do. I did end up buying a camera, one that I could hang up in the corner that watched the door, but part of me thought that this person was going to be able to beat the camera, and that they would somehow get in and mess with me without being seen. Of course, that would have been impossible. And the last day of all this was probably the most excited I've ever been. I came home from another day at work to find my door unlocked again. I walked into my apartment, more pissed off than scared, and in the kitchen found another envelope taped to a bottle of wine. I grabbed the letter and opened it, and this time it was a bit more terrifying. The item in this envelope was a printed photograph of me at work, and on the back it said, You're always so busy. It was a picture of me serving a table that I had waited on only a day prior. I remembered the customer in the photograph, which meant that this person had been in my restaurant and that they were now following me in my everyday life. I started to panic, but quickly turned my attention to the camera in the corner of the room. This guy had the gall not to only walk in, but walk right in front of the camera to get into my kitchen. When I got to my computer and got the footage loaded... I was speechless. I watched as this man opened my front door with ease, walked in with a huge smile on his face, and put the bottle of wine on the counter. I watched as he put the photo on the counter and wrote his note on the back of it, and placed it in the envelope. The reason that I had that level of excitement that I mentioned earlier was because I knew who this was. It was one of the maintenance guys for the property. I had seen him on the property. I had waved at him. I'd had short, passing conversations with him. I called the office and told them that I had the video of the person breaking into my place, and I asked one of the property managers to come to my apartment so that I could show them. They did. And I could tell by the look on his face that he wasn't surprised to see what I was showing him. To wrap this up a bit quicker, I called the police, and I showed them the evidence. After he was arrested, it came out that this wasn't his first offense. He had been arrested and reported of stalking numerous other women. The reason that the office manager wasn't surprised was because he knew full well that this guy had done this before. Apparently, he was what they called a second chance hire. They knew that he had a record of stalking, and when I told them that I was being stalked, they didn't put two and two together. I have no problem with second chance hires. People do deserve a second chance when they make mistakes. But he was a textbook case of, we hired a man known for stalking women, 
we have a woman being stalked, maybe we should consider that. Thankfully, the police took this all very seriously. And since he had a record, they had zero tolerance for his actions. And he went away in cuffs. And, of course, after he was arrested, all of the craziness stopped. Obviously, I moved out of that property and into a new apartment. The inaction of the property management was enough for me to break my lease, which I happily did. Back when I was in high school, I was friends with this eccentric girl named Lisa. Lisa was one of those strange girls. The kind that wear quirky colors, but also tried to dress goth-esque. And I really did like her as a friend, but she could be a bit much at times. I was on the football team, and while I wasn't in the jock clique, I will say that I wasn't in her normal friend group. The reason I ended up being friends with her was because in freshman year... I actually ended up in a group with her for a final project in our biology class, and I learned that she was a pretty interesting individual. I wouldn't say that we were close friends, even, but we were friends. And we would chat whenever we were together in a classroom or whatever, but nothing beyond that. She never showed any interest in me beyond friendship, and I wasn't interested in her beyond friendship. And that was that. However, in junior year, things did change a bit. I started a relationship with one of Lisa's friends, Shelby. Lisa actually got us together because Shelby had a crush on me, and I kind of had a thing for her too. So, obviously the relationship had Lisa's blessing. Being with Shelby meant that I did end up spending more time with Lisa, when we would hang out after school, Lisa would typically want to come over. And again, Lisa was alright, but she started to feel like a third wheel. It got to a point where Lisa would start texting me, asking me what I was doing. And at first, I just thought she was being friendly. At one point, it got to be a bit much when she called me at 3 in the morning to ask me if Shelby and I were going to hang out that day. I got a bit cross with her, telling her not to call me in the middle of the night, and she just sort of sheepishly apologized and hung up. That day, when I went over to Shelby's house, I told her about the call and she freaked out, saying that Lisa had been doing the same thing to her, that she had called her every night for the last two weeks, asking about random things. We talked it through when we both decided that we needed to put up some boundaries with Lisa, especially when we were spending time together. We got to a point where we would make plans to go somewhere, and we wouldn't tell Lisa. We wouldn't mention it around her at all. One weekend, we went to the movies just to get out and go on a date. And after we'd sat down during the previews, who else would show up but Lisa? She walked in the theater with a large popcorn bucket in her hand, and when she saw us, she excitedly yelled, 
Oh my god, there you two are! The entire theater looked back at us, and I'm sure that they immediately thought that we were going to be a problem. I just shushed her and asked her what the hell she was doing. She said that she wanted to see a movie and that she saw us walk into the theater earlier, and that her seeing the same movie was a complete coincidence. I didn't buy it, and based on the look on Shelby's face, she didn't either. Shelby just said something like, Wow, what a coincidence. Lisa sat in the seat next to us, and the whole time she was being obnoxiously loud and annoying. It got to the point where one of the theater employees came into the room during the movie and actually asked us to leave. We tried to tell them that we weren't with her, but they didn't buy it. She was being loud and sitting with us, so we were all asked to get out. I didn't want to end up getting trespassed from the movies or told not to come back, so Shelby and I just got up and started leaving. Then, Lisa started yelling at the employee. She started screaming about how everyone in the theater was discriminating against her, and how she, as an American, was allowed to say what she wanted. I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what she was going on about with all that, but it was embarrassing to be seen as associated with her. I nudged Shelby to go, and she agreed, and we made our way out of the theater as quickly as we could. When we got out, we heard Lisa yell for us and asked why we left her there like that. Shelby actually went off on her, telling her that she was an embarrassment that she was acting like an absolute idiot, and that she had completely ruined our date. At this last part, Lisa's shocked face kind of turned to a slight grin, which, again, telegraphed exactly what she was doing. Ruining our day was her plan, and she'd managed to do so. After Shelby finished saying what she had to say, she grabbed my arm and pulled me away, saying that she couldn't stand to be around Lisa right then. I agreed. We walked away and got in my car to leave. Lisa just stood there with that same stupid grin on her face and waved at us, saying that she'd see us around. It didn't end there, of course. It got to the point where Shelby had to block Lisa's number because she started calling at all hours of the night again. Sometimes she would be sobbing, telling her how sorry she was. Some nights she would call and be pretty obviously pretending to be drunk, and talk about how she and I had slept together, which was a complete lie. One night she called and told Shelby that she was in love with her, and that they should run away together and never come back. Mind you, Shelby and I were 17, and Lisa was still 16 at this time. After Shelby blocked her, Lisa started texting and calling me randomly, telling me that she was in love with me, and that we should be together. I told her that she was nuts, and that I loved Shelby and wanted nothing to do with her. She laughed when I said this, saying that I didn't love Shelby, and that I was just using her as a means to get with her. I hung up on her, and then I blocked her number. One of the last occurrences happened one day after football practice. At this point, it had been around a month since Lisa had really done anything or contacted either of us. 
probably because we'd blocked her number. When practice was over, Shelby and I went to get into my car and get home, and when I opened my driver's side door, I saw a manila envelope sitting on the center console. I asked if it was hers, and she said no. I knew it wasn't mine. I got in and grabbed it, and when I flipped it over, my heart stopped. The front said, From Lisa, to the love of my life. I just stared at those words and kind of froze. How had she gotten into my car? And worse, what was going to be in that envelope? Shelby asked what the hell it was, and I told her that I didn't know, and that I didn't want to know. She asked if I should open it, and at first I considered it, but then I had a second thought. I told her not to open it, and that I knew what we should do. I put my car in drive, and I went straight to Lisa's house. I went and knocked on the door, and was actually thankful when her mother answered and not her. I asked her if Lisa was home, and she told me that she wasn't, that she had to stay after school and would be home soon, which was the second blessing in this situation. Thankfully, her parents knew both Shelby and I. They knew Shelby a bit more, but since I was Shelby's boyfriend, they knew who I was. I asked her if we could come in and talk with her a moment about Lisa, and while she was confused, she invited us in. When we got into the living room, I handed her the envelope, and I told her that I had found it in my car, and I then started telling her about all the things that Lisa had been doing. I told her that I respected Lisa and that she was my friend, but that something needed to be done about how she was acting. Her mother then asked what was in the envelope, and I told her that I had no idea, that we hadn't opened it. I watched her open the envelope and pull out what looked to be a stack of Polaroids. As soon as she flipped through the first few, her face went completely white as a sheet, and she quietly said, Oh my god. Almost as if on cue, Lisa walked in the front door, and the three of us all looked over at her as she quietly asked what was going on. Her mother stood up and turned to look at her, and when she did, I was able to catch a glimpse of one of the photos. It was exactly what you might think. It was a photo of Lisa in a very inappropriate way. I then stood up and said that Shelby and I should probably leave them to talk about things, and her mother told me that she appreciated me bringing this to her attention, and that nothing like this would ever happen again. Shelby and I left, and the whole time we were walking to the door, Lisa was watching us with an incredibly angry look on her face. Which should have left me feeling guilty, but what she was doing was way over the line. As we were walking down the front steps, I could hear her mother starting in on her, asking why she was taking nude pictures of herself and giving them to her friends like that. Again, I probably should have felt bad, but there's only so much that one can take until pity no longer becomes an option. As we drove back to my house, Shelby asked if what we did was the right thing to do. I told her that we could have handled it differently, but that it had been months at this point, and that Lisa hadn't gotten the hint. I then mentioned that, since Lisa was still 16, 
what she had put in that envelope and in my car was 100% illegal, and that she could have called the cops and told them that I was in possession of those pictures, and I very likely could have been arrested for it. When I mentioned that, I think Shelby understood what I was saying, and agreed with my sentiment. She asked me if I thought that that was her plan, and I told her that I didn't know, but that I wouldn't have put it past her. That was the last major event with Lisa, thankfully. She still tried to talk to us some, and she would sometimes send us texts from a different number, asking if we could talk about everything, but we pretty much just cut her out, and told her that we were done with her. Shelby and I are actually married, happily so, and we have a two-year-old now, so thankfully Lisa wasn't able to drive a wedge between us like she wanted. The only reason that I even thought of this story was because Lisa tried to send Shelby a friend request on Facebook, as is the cliché reason. Shelby considered accepting it, and I told her that it was her choice, but also mentioned that junior year was only 10 years ago, and that there's a high chance that she's still the same person she was. In the end, I hope that Lisa has a great life. I hope that she finds someone else to fill the role of, quote, love of her life, because it's not me. And I hope that she can live out her days with them, because I never want to see her again. I've worked in the accounting department for a smaller, I guess medium-sized organization for about five and a half years now. It's been a pretty decent job, and that I have spent a lot of time learning the job, and have definitely put a ton of hours into climbing the corporate ladder and getting into my current position, though not without its issues and quirks. The office that I work at, however, actually has a pretty dark history. Back in 1929, during the big stock market crash, the building was actually occupied by a financial firm that lost a ton of money and value, and the possibly true but totally dramatic legend of the building is that the president of said company actually took his life. Supposedly, he went to the roof of the building and jumped. Obviously, none of this can be verified, but I personally believe it, because something creepy is definitely going on here. That's actually where the weird stuff starts. I work on the sixth floor, which is the top occupied floor of the building. There is a seventh floor, but it's basically used for the servers and storage more than anything. That said, the seventh floor is also where said president's office was when he worked here. There's an old and honestly kind of rickety elevator that we use to get from floor to floor, and the elevator will seemingly randomly go up to the seventh floor. Almost no one ever has to go up to the seventh floor, so when I have to use the elevator and it indicates that it's coming down from up there, I always get a bit of a chill. There was actually one point where I was in the elevator going to the sixth floor, 
and as I was standing there waiting, I watched the light for the seventh floor light up, as if it had been pressed. Thankfully, it stopped at my floor first, so I got off immediately and just moved on. It happens enough that we've all thought that it was maybe a glitch in the elevator or something, but we had some techs come out and look at it, and they've all stated that the elevator is in perfect working order. They've replaced parts to try to get it to stop, but no matter what we do, the seventh floor button will randomly get pressed. So, we just assume that it's something we don't understand and we've accepted it. One night, I was working late due to it being the end of the month, and I had a lot of reports that I needed to finish before the end of the week. I was the only one left on the floor, which isn't terribly uncommon. I was sitting at my desk when I heard a loud thud coming from the direction of the elevator. I walked over to the elevator door, and it was open, as if someone had just gotten off on the floor that I was on. I peeked inside, and there was no one on it, of course. I kind of looked around to see if I could find anyone that may have been there late, maybe a janitor, but there was nobody. On my way back to my desk, I glanced over at the printer area and I noticed that there was a pack of printer paper that had been knocked over onto the ground, which I'm assuming was the thud that I heard. I went over and collected all the pages and put it back on the table by the printer and then I went back to my desk. No more than ten minutes later, I heard that same thud sound. It made me jump and look around again, but it clicked pretty quickly that it was just the paper stack. I got up and walked over toward the printer area to confirm what it was, and as I approached, I watched the elevator doors close on an empty elevator, and saw that the arrows were pointing up which, again, told me that it was going to the seventh floor. Then, I saw the paper stack, and sure enough, it was knocked over again. I went over and picked it back up, but this time, I put the paper in the cabinet and relocked it just in case. Thankfully, that was the last event that evening, but not the last thing to happen. Some nights, when I would be working late... I would hear footsteps throughout the floor, footsteps that were definitely not from anyone that was there. I wasn't alone every night, and my coworkers would agree that they heard the footsteps, but the steps were always heavy and loud. Everyone on my team is a woman, and none of us have very heavy steps, so there was no way that these steps were coming from any of us. We would randomly hear voices calling out, usually saying, Hey, or excuse me. But again, it was a rather masculine voice, and there were no men on the floor at the time. We would just ignore the voice, or sometimes would say, Hello, back to it. And that would be that. Now, all of this was creepy and is a pretty good indicator that this place is likely haunted by someone, but there was one last thing that happened that I wanted to mention, because it was the height of absolute paranormal terror for me. There was one day where my team was having a bit of a celebration in the 6th floor break room for the CFO's birthday. 
there was something that we needed to get from up on the seventh floor, from the storage section of the floor. And myself and my direct manager said that we would go up and get it. When we got up there, and we went to get whatever it was that we needed to get, we both paused and listened. This floor is normally pretty silent, minus the small server farm in the back corner. But while we were up there, it was not silent. We were standing there and listening to what we could easily identify as a man sobbing. We looked at each other and thought about whether or not we should look and see if anyone was up there, and we kind of just looked around the storage room for a moment, around the area where it was coming from, and we didn't see anything. As we got to the back, though, we definitely heard the sobbing get louder, and I think we were both kind of freaking out about it. We just grabbed whatever we needed and headed back down. My manager mentioned it to the CFO, and she laughed about it, saying that we weren't the first people to mention that they'd heard crying upstairs. She then mentioned that she firmly believes it's the spirit of that company's president, and that because of his actions, he's forever stuck in this building and cannot move on. I will say that I wasn't expected to hear the CFO start talking about paranormal stuff, or the building being haunted, but it was nice to know that we at least weren't crazy. I try not to work late much anymore, mostly because I don't like dealing with the creepiness, but my coworkers have mentioned that they've experienced similar things, so at least I know that it hasn't stopped. I hope that someday his spirit does find peace, but based on what she said, I think that it's pretty likely that he'll forever be stuck there. I have a bit of a scary story that happened to me when I was a restaurant manager. It was about three years ago, and I was managing a bustling little family-owned Italian restaurant in a small town on the outskirts of Boston. It was a really nice restaurant that I had worked at for about two years before being promoted up to a manager, which was a promotion that I didn't expect, but that I very much appreciated. For the most part, I loved my job. The owner was a friendly and generous guy, and we had a lot of regulars that fawned over the owner's lasagna. I know that that sounds kind of silly, but it was true. We would sell out of the lasagna every day, and we had some really passionate customers. Obviously, with every job, there are ups and downs. One of the biggest downs with this job was when I had to do any sort of reprimanding to my subordinates. I absolutely adored my staff, but there were times where I had to put my foot down and be a bit of an a-hole. We had one server, Jessica, that was awesome when she was hired, but as the time went on, I noticed that she started slacking really hard. At first, it was just her coming in a few minutes late, or messing up some orders, and I can understand that serving isn't the easiest job, 
and we all make mistakes, so I would make comments to her about correcting some of her actions, and she would agree that she made a mistake and would say that she would fix the issues. As a manager, this was enough for me to let the issue go. I believe that when a person acknowledges their problems and say that they will fix them, you should take them at their word. Unfortunately, my trust in Jessica was misplaced. On the particular evening where things went south, she showed up 40 minutes late, and worse yet, she was reeking of booze. Her eyes were glassy, and her movements were sluggish. As soon as I got a whiff of her, my heart sank, and I asked her to come with me to my tiny manager's office. I sat her down and I asked her what was going on, and she told me that she was sorry that she was late, and that her roommate, the person who brought her to work every day, had been running late and she couldn't help it. I then asked her if she'd been drinking, and she immediately tried to deny it. I then mentioned that she reeked of alcohol, and that it was physically obvious that she was inebriated. When I said this, she started to tear up, and said that she was just so stressed out and nervous about the job and that she may have had a drink or two to try to loosen up. Unfortunately, with that, I really didn't have a choice. I couldn't have her on the floor smelling like alcohol, and she would be a liability in the back being tipsy. On top of that, this wasn't her first reprimand, so I really had no choice in the matter. I told her to go ahead and call her roommate to come pick her up, and said that she could come back on Friday to get her last check, and to talk to the owner. I didn't want to ruin her career prospects, so I mentioned that when she came up on Friday, we could discuss how this would look on paper, and we would give her a chance to resign instead of being fired. Her response was silence. She just stared at the desk with a blank stare until she stood up, and walked out of the office, and then out the back door. I returned to the floor, taking on the tables that Jessica was supposed to be assigned, hoping to salvage the rush and make the most of the night. I also had to do the managerial duties, so it was a stressful night, but all the work did a pretty good job at keeping my mind off of the whole ordeal. About two hours had passed, and the front door swung open like it was shoved hard. And when I turned to greet this slightly aggressive customer, I was shocked to see Jessica just standing there. She looked like a mess. Her mascara was running, her eyes were dark, and I could see that she was in a rage. She headed straight toward me, ignoring everyone else that was pretty clearly staring at her at this point. Before I could react... She was already upon me, and attacking me. She had knocked me to the floor and was pummeling me repeatedly. By the time I was able to register that I needed to fight back, I tried to shove her off of me, but by the time I was able to reach my arm up to push her, I felt this excruciating pain in my leg that threw me back down. The whole time, Jessica was screaming that I was going to die, that... She was going to end my life. 
I tried to fend her off, but the pain in my leg was so bad that I could barely focus. Thankfully, a couple of patrons, two burly men, that were there pretty much every week, rushed forward and grabbed Jessica off of me. They held her down while the hostess frantically called 911, and I just remember the whole restaurant being in chaos before I started to feel lightheaded and eventually passed out. When I finally came to, I was in an ambulance and the paramedics were tending to my leg, where Jessica had jammed a metal fork, which explained the pain. They said that it hadn't hit any major arteries, but that it was a very deep wound and that I had lost a lot of blood. From what I was told, the police arrived and they took control of the situation, putting Jessica under arrest and the whole time she was fighting them and everyone else in a violent fit. I later found out that Jessica had a history of alcoholism and violent behavior, and that she was trying to get clean, but had apparently been relapsing pretty hard, until that day that she showed up to work drunk. This incident haunts me to this day, as I've seen what alcohol abuse can do to someone so young and the violence that it can instigate. I felt awful that she ended up getting charged because I wanted the best for her, but her decisions completely removed any power that I had over the situation. I was forced to make a hard decision as a manager, one that I did not take lightly, but was necessary for everybody in the restaurant, and she obviously took that very personally. My leg healed, mostly, but the scar on my leg is a reminder of the harder parts of having to manage people. So, to all you managers out there, stay safe and cherish your good employees. And to Jessica, wherever you are, please let's never meet again. Back when my son, Riley, was around seven or eight, my wife and I noticed something peculiar about him. He had a, a passion for drawing and coloring. He was actually very creative. He liked to draw the normal kid stuff, like pictures of us, our dog, and our two cats and other animals. But what really caught our attention was that he kept drawing the same house over and over again. At first, we thought he had simply discovered a subject he liked, and enjoyed drawing it. He'd drawn houses before, but they were pretty simple, the kind that you would normally see a kid draw. But this specific house was drawn differently than normal, and was a lot more detailed. I could tell it was the same house because of those details and the colors that he used. Over time, he would add in more features of this same house and would draw it from different angles as well. He added the square shingles on the roof, the shutters on the window, the flower bed in the yard. Everything was there and precise. Now, there was nothing wrong with these drawings, and none of it ever looked alarming or out of the ordinary, so we never questioned it. Or called it out other than saying that he was doing a great job. 
but we did become curious when he started drawing the house from the top, like a blueprint. Granted, he was only eight, so the lines weren't straight and there were no words or labels, but it was very clearly a blueprint. Granted, he was only eight, so the lines weren't straight and there were no words or labels, but it was very clearly a blueprint. That's when we started asking about what he was drawing. He kept saying that it was his house, which we thought was odd because it obviously looked nothing like our house. I tried asking more questions about what he meant, but his answers were typically short and vague. Again, it wasn't hurting anything, so I just let it go. During a school break, I stayed home with him a lot as I was a contractor and was in between jobs at the time. After lunch, he wanted to go play in his room and excused himself. I'd been lounging around the living room when I noticed it had been a few hours since I even saw or heard from him, so I thought I would go check in. He had the door open, and as I rounded the corner, I saw him with his Legos spread out on the floor, organized by color and piece, and some loose-leaf printer paper next to him with the drawings of the house again. I could tell by his mumblings and long sighs that he was getting frustrated, so I knocked on the doorframe to let him know that I was there. He looked up at me with an almost sad or frustrated eyes. I asked him what he was building, and again he said, my house. I asked him what he meant by that, and he explained that it was his old house. Again, this is the only house he knows when it comes to places he's lived. He's been to my parents' and my in-laws' home before, but we've lived at this house since he was born. I think this frustration got the best of him, because he finally explained more. No, my house from a long time ago. I can't remember things about it. It's important, but I can't think about it as much anymore. It didn't really clear anything up, but I just assumed that he meant his drawings. He was still young, so his sentences weren't perfect, but I feel like he got the point across. I just told him that he was doing great and to keep it up, and I was confident that he would make it perfect, just the way that he wanted. But Riley just shook his head, his expression still serious. No, Dad, you don't get it. It's not made up. It's my old house. I built it. I lived there. His sentence slowly tapering off as the look on his face dropped to a frown. I was taken aback. Yes, he was a very creative kid, and I'd say even imaginative, but he's never been this passionate about it when me or his mom approached him while playing. I didn't know what to think about this. We hadn't watched anything about an old house, or building them for that matter, so where could this be coming from? It was hard for me to wrap my head around what could be troubling my young son, but I was still curious to learn more. I asked him what he could remember about this old house. Riley took a deep breath, I could tell his eyes were filled with sadness, and he said, I remember making the house with my own hands. Looking down at his hands with his palms out, he continued, I was happy about it. I did a good job. 
I lived there with my girlfriend, and there was a baby. But one day there was a cracking sound, and the floor broke upstairs. It crushed us, and I couldn't save us. I was very scared. And now I remember it again, and I don't want to forget it, because I need to figure out how I messed it up, so that it doesn't happen at our new home. I don't want to die again. I don't want you to die. My heart broke as I listened to him recall what I could only describe as a past life. I started trying to think of literally anything he could have watched or seen, or maybe something he heard his mom and I talk about, but I couldn't recall anything. I don't even remember hearing about a house collapsing on the news or on the radio. And when I asked him if this was a dream, he told me no, because he saw these thoughts all the time when he was awake, not asleep. At that moment, and even though it was the voice of my little boy, those weren't his words. I could tell. My initial skepticism was overruled by the overwhelming sense of compassion and wonder. I wanted to figure this out to not only make sure this never troubled my son again, but to make sure if this was legitimate, that the person he was could move on and be at peace. After telling my wife about what I experienced, she was skeptical at first too, but after hearing it come directly from Riley, she seemed a bit more convinced that something was definitely off here. Over the following weeks, Riley continued to share more details about his memories. He described the layout of the house, the creaky floorboards, and even the scent of the baked goods that his wife would always make. He even described the flowers that his wife had planted outside the house, white tulips. But he would always bring it back around, saying that he needed to make sure this place was stronger, and making sure history didn't repeat itself. I thought the best thing to do would be first to assure Riley that our current house was safe. I did everything I could to get diagrams, blueprints, and structural layouts of our home. I contacted our realtor, I tried government records, and I even brought in an appraiser. With all the info I got, I was able to piece a lot of it together, and I showed it to Riley. He seemed to understand everything on paper better than I could. He explained where the stress points were in our place, and walked through it, trying to determine where the internal beams or walls were. But when we finished the walkthrough, he said that it made him feel much better, and it helped him understand what he did wrong. He said he was no longer scared of our new home. I just remember the huge hug that he gave me, thanking me for helping him that day, and I remember it being such an unusual hug. Again, it was my son, but the strength in this hug and the tears in his eyes made me think something there was not him. As time went on from there, he drew the house less and less, and rarely talked about it, until one day he just never mentioned it again. Riley is now about to start high school, and he said he doesn't remember any of this. Part of me is relieved because I only want him to remember a happy childhood, but 
I kind of also wanted to hear more about the house. I'm still curious about it myself, and I would love to find it. Or at least some records on it, since it might not be standing anymore. But the first problem is, I don't even know if it was in the same state we live in now. I guess that that will just always be an unanswered part of this story. In the end, it has definitely opened my mind to the world of past lives and possibly reincarnations. This extraordinary experience has taught me that there is certainly more to this world than just life and death. This is a long story, so I'll try to make it as concise as I can. I was a member of the Queen fandom, mainly Freddie Mercury. Queen fans are a surprisingly gross, homophobic bunch of people, and so there were many fights over Freddie's sexuality. I had some theories about him and his psychology, but no one was prepared to listen, and I'd spend far too long in forums arguing with stupid people, and I was sick of it, and was about to leave when a woman, Emily Ramirez, no real names are going to be used here, messaged me saying that she agreed with all of my theories, and asked to friend request me. We chatted on Facebook Messenger for ages, testing the water, I guess, to get to know each other. We became pretty close over the weeks, finding out that we both had the same dark, inappropriate sense of humor. Despite a six-hour time zone difference, I'm in London, England, and she was in Texas, we were pretty close, telling each other all of our personal stuff, fighting trolls together, and, most importantly, laughing. Just hysterically laughing. We even spoke on the phone for hours and hours about Freddie Mercury, his personality, theories about his songs and pre-fame life story. There was no one else who shared our views, except another woman called Alyssa, whom she met on YouTube. Emily invited Alyssa to our group chat for a while, but eventually Alyssa stopped messaging and I sort of forgot about her. At this time, there was no reason to doubt that Emily was real. If she said she was doing something in her life, her Facebook checked out. For example, she graduated from law school and celebrated by going on a six-week road trip from Houston to Anaheim, stopping at Roswell, New Mexico, El Paso, Sedona, Arizona, the Grand Canyon, and Las Vegas on her way. I'd always wanted to see the American desert, and she suggested that I should come over and do a road trip with her the next year. As she went, photos appeared in the locations that she told me she was going to, in the order one might logically travel, and I was fascinated by these places that I dreamed of seeing. Emily is a lesbian, and she told me that she had a crazy ex who was out of her league, tall and blonde. And, sure enough... There were photos of the two of them from the previous Halloween. When she asked me for hair dye advice after her hair went wrong from pool chlorine, there were photos to prove it. She played guitar, 
and when someone requested a song, she duly posted a video of herself playing it. And she was a bit sick of Facebook in the end, so she deleted it entirely, using a new blank profile for the purpose of staying in contact with three friends, including myself. For a while, we kind of dominated the Queen slash Freddie Mercury forums as sort of experts, and we even got to know some of his friends from his 80s gay club years, and I had written some articles on him that I was sharing in groups under pseudonyms. Soon, an Italian woman in the forums began to harass both Emily and myself, discrediting our articles. I blocked her, and two German women rose in her place, name-calling. They plagiarized our work that was paywalled and spread it online, saying that we didn't deserve to be paid for lies about Freddie Mercury, so they were giving it away for free. That did die down, but two years later, one of these people reappeared on a different forum, trying to humiliate me by posting links to old fanfictions that I'd written many years ago on another site that were unrelated to Queen. She'd worked out that it was me from my usernames. She listed all of my usernames across every social media site that I happened to be on, and accused me of being many more people who, coincidentally, had similar usernames to mine. All of this was because she was possessive over Freddy, and was angry that me and Emily were getting heavily involved with Freddy's friends. I quickly worked out that the Italian and the two Germans were one and the same. She'd been watching me and Emily for two years. I was made redundant from my job, so my lifeline was to sell Queen fan art. Emily helped me build a webpage, and I had some offers to buy prints of my work, until I received about 30 takedown notices from Universal Music Group, saying that I'd been reported personally for copyright. I warned another victim of the troll who also sold art to be careful. This girl was a minor, who had actually been doxxed by the troll. After this, the troll began using my non-queen art as her profile photos and calling herself the names of the people that I had drawn. She had also removed my watermarks and was threatening to sell them all on her own site. Both Emily and I quit the queen fandom, partly because of the troll and partly because we hated the biopic, because Brian May pissed us off, and because we had moved on to other interests. We stayed in contact, but things weren't the same when we had no silly jokes about Freddy to laugh about, and even his friends were bullied off the forums by homophobes and the troll. Emily only kept her Instagram, where she would do live, faceless Q&As about Freddy. Then, one night at 3am UK time, Emily messaged in a panic and asked to call. She was hysterical saying that she needed to confess something to me. Her name was not Emily Ramirez. It was Alyssa Sanchez. She had tried to tell me ages ago when she invited Alyssa to our group chat, with the aim of phasing Emily out and then Emily would become Alyssa. But she dropped the idea in the end, because she thought that I'd easily work out that Alyssa had suddenly developed Emily's personality. 
She said that she had tried many times to tell me her real name, but was embarrassed. Why the sudden confession? Well, the troll had screen recorded an Instagram Live where Emily was showing followers her Freddy merchandise. She had her laptop on in the foreground, and the troll slowed the video down. And, on Emily's laptop screen, she observed a file named Alyssa Sanchez Tax Documents. The troll called her, threatening to blow her cover online, to tell people that she was never a lawyer and was leading a fake life. So, Emily confessed that she was Alyssa to beat the troll to it, and she apologized about the whole thing. This was not the end. From here on, Emily will be referred to as Alyssa. The troll, who we found out was a middle-aged woman named Lucy, then phoned Alyssa's mother and cousin, screaming that she knows who they are, that Alyssa still talks to me, and that she will humiliate us and destroy anything creative that we do that invokes Freddy's name. The last I heard was that the troll had pretended to be a rival publisher, in order to obtain copies of a book that Freddy's friends were releasing for legal reasons, which meant that she saw an advanced copy of their book before the authors themselves. I did almost suss Alyssa slash Emily out, but I brushed it off. She said her father was a well-known lawyer in the state of Indiana, but no such person exists. I thought, oh well, maybe American stuff is omitted from a UK search engine. Another time, she had filmed herself opening a book that she'd bought, and her nails and hands were different to those in selfies that she'd sent me. I put it down to her simply growing her nails out. One time she said that her dad was Mexican and that her mom was Spanish, but this later got switched around, and she said that her dad believed Spanish people were superior to Mexican people, and regularly told her he was happy he produced quote-unquote white-passing kids. Well, people make typing mistakes sometimes, right? Then, she spelled her name differently to normal, and I just brushed it off as bad autocorrect, as her autocorrect fails were a running saga for her. Eventually, we video-called, and I never understood the point of her fakery. She actually looked very similar to the girl whose identity she had stolen. So, I got catfished. And my catfish wasn't even the scary one. A stalker destroyed my friendship with my catfish. Which was for the best in the end. Maybe. Alyssa doesn't message me anymore, and I do kind of miss her. Lucy still has my art as her profile picture four years on. And on Queen Forums, she calls herself Alyssa Ramirez, mashing up the two names. Me? I just keep my love for Queen to myself these days. This is a story that I've kept to myself for a very long time. Other than family because they were involved and affected, the only other person that knows about this is a close friend. I still get this bizarre feeling recalling it, and I know that many people may not believe it, but I wanted to share it. 
However, just to give my family privacy, I will not be using real names, nor will I be sharing where I'm from. What now feels like a century ago, my family and I gathered at my grandparents' rustic summer home for a much-needed and long-planned family reunion. It was a picturesque cabin with a little guest house on the same property, both tucked away in the woods, surrounded by trees and a gorgeous lake. This home was built by my family, and the land had always been in our family. I knew that one day it would be passed down to me and my brother. At the time of this reunion, I had one child, a young daughter that I'll call Emily. Emily was about six at the time, but she had never been there before. She met my grandmother, her great-grandmother, but she always came to see us. I was excited to take her so that she could experience and share similar memories that I had made there. I wanted her to swing on the tire swing that my dad put up. I wanted to take her swimming and fishing in the lake. I wanted her to be able to get out of the busy city and experience the beauty that was nature. Our time there was perfect. Everybody wanted to meet Emily, as many of them hadn't yet, and there were a few other kids close in age, so all the cousins and second cousins were able to play together. We were all having a great time. As the sun began to set and people were slowly trickling down, my daughter was in between being fully awake and in need of a nap. Emily and her great-grandmother always seemed very close. She loved being with her and doing everything that she did, so I accepted when she wanted to go sit out back on the porch with her and swing, thinking that she would doze off too. I went inside and was talking to my mom and a few other relatives, nothing of importance really happening at this point. It had been no more than 15 minutes or so when I heard the back door open and my grandma come in. She was alone. I wasn't concerned because there was no one around but family. I knew that she would be fine out there. What I was concerned about was the distressed look on my grandma's face. I went to ask her what was wrong and she asked to speak to my mom, her daughter, alone. I nodded and the two of them walked off to her bedroom. I went out to check on Emily, who was still sitting in the swing and singing to herself. I asked if she was okay and she said yes, and then she asked if Nana was okay. That's what she called her. I said that she was, and Emily said that she didn't mean to make her sad. I couldn't see how she could have, so I told her that she didn't and I sat with her. Shortly after... My mom came outside and asked to speak with me. She asked me what Emily had said to Grandma, and even what I could have said to Emily about her. My mom had a suspicious yet worried tone to her voice, and I had no idea what was going on. First, my grandma was upset, still hiding in her bedroom, and then my mom, and all over what my six-year-old could have said. It didn't make any sense, and I demanded an explanation. So I went back to sit with Emily to try and figure out what was said. I asked her, and she looked down at her lap, like she was sad or that she knew she was going to be in trouble. 
I tried my best to reassure her that she wasn't in trouble in any way, but I just wanted to know what they talked about. Little did I know that my daughter had actually set off a chain reaction of revelations that many of us in the family were unaware of. Emily, in her innocent yet perceptive way, had asked her Nana why she never visited her grave anymore. Startled by the question, my grandma inquired further. Emily pointed out into the trees behind the home that we were in, saying, Over there, I missed hearing you sing to me, but it's okay, I'm not sad. I'm happy now, and you should be happy now too. The impact of those words? Emily had no idea what she had done. Emily seemed to know about a long-buried secret, one that I didn't even know about. My grandma had experienced a heartbreaking tragedy in her youth. She'd become pregnant before marriage, and her father found out. He went into a rage which led to a devastating outcome. The unborn child was lost, and my grandma had buried her in the trees, scared, not knowing what else to do. She would often go back there to talk to her and sing to her and would be out there for hours. For decades, she had carried this secret with her, weighed down by guilt and pain, but you would never guess it. My grandma was always the life of the party. She loved having people over and would do anything for you if you were in trouble. If people fought, she was always there to break it up and fix what was broken. It was almost unbelievable, and I wanted to go back and check in the trees to confirm this, but... My mom stopped me, telling me no. I remember her using the same parental tone from when I was a child, and that alone told me that this had to be true. She told me not to bring it up to Grandma and that she would figure it all out. However, Emily seemed to be able to tell that something was wrong, and she was adamant on seeing her Nana. After asking if she could go in, she allowed her in and the remaining few of us stayed outside, continuing to entertain ourselves. They both came out shortly after, my grandma's eyes slightly red from crying, but she was all smiles as she carried Emily. They both were. The rest of that night picked back up, and everyone, including my grandma, was lighthearted and laughing. Emily and I stayed in my grandma's spare bedroom that night, and my mom was staying in the guest house, so... We were all up pretty late talking, Emily long since asleep. My grandma apologized for the way that she'd acted earlier, but I kept telling her that it was okay and that she didn't need to talk about it if she didn't want to. I even apologized, unaware of how Emily would have any knowledge of that. I didn't even know about it. But I listened to her story, and I saw a part of my grandma that I never knew of. After she explained further, she mentioned how she always felt something different with Emily. I could agree with her. They always seemed extremely close from the moment that they met. Emily had a very bad illness shortly after being born. I was stressed out trying to calm her, but nothing worked. Even my mom tried to help with similar results, but when my grandma came over, she asked for Emily and... 
I teased that I would be surprised if she calmed down. To my surprise, she did. She calmed down near immediately, and I was shocked. It continued like this as Emily grew up, too. They were so close, and I never knew why. Not that it made a difference to me, it was just heartwarming to watch. My grandma explained how she always felt like Emily was her guardian angel on Earth, and that her unborn child was part of Emily. Normally, I would have probably said that sounded insane and weird, but I could absolutely believe it. It's like Emily had known her a lot longer than six years, and how else would she have known about the grave in the woods? She didn't even understand death yet. No one had passed since I'd had her, so it was never something that she would have known about. After this event, my grandma and Emily seemed to have an even stronger, inseparable bond. She stayed over at our place often, and Emily always wanted her to stay in her room with her. I loved it, and I know that it meant so much to my grandma, too. It was like she got to live with her baby after all. My grandma passed away two years ago, and it was very hard on all of us, especially Emily. But after her service, Emily was the one to tell us that we needed to be happy, because she would never want us to be sad. Knowing the bond that they had together, I felt like it was my grandma herself telling us this. Emily is now 13, and she remembers her Nana vividly, and talks about her at times. However, she has no recollection of the conversation she had that night at the reunion. She remembered how close they were, but couldn't explain why. Even with my grandma now gone, my mom and I still talk about that night. Emily's innocent words had triggered a very powerful healing process, and I'm thankful that my grandma was able to pass on without any guilt or sadness in her heart. I've worked construction for about a decade now. In the local towns around me, there are buildings that need regular restoration, and the company that I work for is often called out to work on these jobs. You need to be careful with some of these older places because they tend to have a lot of asbestos in them, and it needs specialized care and disposal. The company also does work on abandoned hospitals, factories, and other larger places. It is pretty eerie, and I'm not a believer in ghosts or anything, but maybe you can tell me what this could have been. This was at a job in an abandoned hospital that was being converted. To what, I can't remember. I was by myself, my workmate had left to get some paint, and I had my AirPods in. I was listening to music and just focused on my job. I was cutting some wood for the beams when I saw something run past me. I called out to my workmate to stop being a dickhead and to get back to work. He didn't say anything and I didn't see him. I kept cutting for a while. It was cold at the time. Freezing cold. Keep in mind that I live in Australia and the temperatures can get extremely warm during the summer, 
I then saw the shadow of a child, and I called out to the kid that it wasn't safe for them to be in here. I checked some of the rooms nearby, and there were no kids, and no signs of my lazy workmate. I went out to tell my supervisor what happened, and he told me that my workmate was on break. Yeah, typical. I then told him about the kid running around, and he went to talk to the lady who owned the place. She was one of those crazy spiritual types who saw ghosts and shadows everywhere. She smiled at me and told me that it was the spirit of a lost girl, and said that she must have liked me. If I wasn't working at that time, I would have told her what I thought then and there. I went back to my job and figured they must have just been taking the piss. My workmate still wasn't back yet. I didn't have my AirPods in at this point, when I heard what sounded like a whisper, and I have to admit that I jumped. What people don't realize is, with older buildings, is that they tend to have issues with the pipes, or with windows not being sealed properly. I couldn't explain the sharp drop in temperature, though. I was measuring how long the pieces of timbers needed to be, when I could have sworn that I saw the figure of a small girl out of the corner of my eye. When I looked directly at her, she disappeared. I still wouldn't say that I believed that she was there or that she was real. I just heard the story about her, and you could say that I guess I was spooked by it. I could hear my workmate coming back in. I called out to him, and we spoke before getting back to work. It was, what, five to ten minutes before I heard him let out a high-pitched scream. I walked out of the room that I was working in to see what was going on. He was pale as a sheet and I've never seen anyone look so scared in my life. He told me that he saw a little girl just standing there. Now, I'm not the most trusting fellow. I asked him if he'd heard about the story from the lady who owned the place, and he told me that he hasn't spoken to her and hasn't met her yet. I asked him if he talked to our supervisor, and he said, yeah, but only to tell him that he was back. He hadn't heard about the apparent ghost of the little girl. I looked at his face for any sign of a laugh or that he was messing with me, but I didn't see any, and I could read this kid like a book. I asked him what he thought of the place, and, well, the kid is as dumb as a bag of bricks, so he said that he thought the place was creepy and haunted. I wondered about myself. I just told him to get back to work and to stop messing around. After that, I kept pausing thinking that I could see the little girl out of the corner of my eye as I worked. I think that she whispered something to me, and I kept pretending that I didn't hear her. I could have sworn that I was hearing some giggling too. Maybe I've just spent too much time in these old places. But what do you think it was? Can anyone help me with this? I still don't personally believe in ghosts or anything, and I wanted to add, Raven, you have the best narrations, especially your Aussie stories. Those were amazing. After getting permission from my friend, I wanted to share this story with you and others that might find it interesting. 
Several years ago, my friend Elaine had an experience that left us all questioning the very fabric of reality. It all began when we went on a seemingly innocent road trip, and visited an old historical mansion that was turned into a small museum. The days leading up to this event were quite the normal vacationing fun, and nothing was askew, until we saw a pamphlet for this place. We've gone to plenty of art shows and museums before, but when Elaine saw this place, she said that she really wanted to make time to go there. She said that she couldn't explain why, but she knew that something would be there for us. I didn't see any reason not to go, and we adjusted our plans to make room for it. As soon as we arrived, Elaine explained that she had an inexplicable sense of deja vu. She said that this place looked very familiar to her, yet she's never been here. It was in a state that neither us nor her family have ever been to. We just chalked it up to just being that strange phenomenon and went inside. Shortly after, I could tell that something was going on in Elaine's head, but she was not outwardly expressing it. I stayed quiet as we went through the various rooms, looking at the antiquated tools and structures, as well as the art strewn across the walls. The further we went in, the more that I could see the unease in her. Then, we reached a small room that contained a beautiful gown, and a painting with a dim light hanging above it. The painting was of a young girl with striking green eyes, her dark hair pulled into an elegant bun with thin, soft curls framing her face. The woman was wearing the same gown that was hanging in that room. Elaine seemed to stop at the painting, staring at it intently. I looked over at it and saw that her eyes were watery, like she was holding back tears. Something about the painting seemed to pull at her heartstrings. I nudged her, looking back at the painting and asking her if she was okay. I know her. Like, I knew her and she knew me. Like, I was her. Knowing who we were, I just kind of chuckled and said, Oh yeah? She looked over at me and I could see her visibly swallowing hard. So I again asked her what was wrong. She said that she didn't know and we soon moved on, the rest of our tour being pretty silent. After we left, I tried to lighten the mood and said that the place was pretty interesting, and talked about some of the things that we saw. She seemed to try her best, but I could still feel something was there that she wasn't talking about. We went back to our hotel, where she talked about what she felt. She reiterated how she felt something telling her she needed to go when she saw the pamphlet, and the whole time that we were in the mansion... She felt like she had been there before. She was able to go through all the corridors and rooms smoothly because she just knew where each room was. Then we got to the picture. She talked about how she had a rush of emotion flow through her from happiness to confusion and sorrow, and it was all overwhelming. She explained how even though the painting said artist unknown, she knew who that was, and who painted it. She said the woman in the photo was named Arabella, and her father's friend painted it. 
Yes, she said her father. She said that she used to be Arabella. I didn't quite understand what she was saying at the time, but she briefly explained how she felt like her life as Elaine was a second life. I was confused, but also curious to hear more about her experience, but we stopped to have dinner and just enjoyed our night. The next day, Elaine woke up seemingly a bit sorrowful, but also enlightened, I suppose. She told me about a very vivid dream that she had and explained how it had been a recurring dream for her for as long as she could remember. They never made sense, as it seemed to jump around a lot, though. But that night, the dream made sense, and it was the clearest it had ever been for her. It was as though she was telling me a story. She explained that she was Arabella, and that she was laying in a large green field with a handsome young man sitting next to her. Then she could hear the booming voice of a man yelling out her name, Arabella. She recalled how scared she felt as the man she was with kissed her, and ran off, and then how she stood up to begin walking towards the voice that she had heard. She said that the dream ended, or she may have woken up as she was running, so she didn't know what else happened. However, she now understood what was going on in the dream. She was Arabella, and even though his name was not mentioned in the dream, she knew the young man that she was with was named Felix, and he was her true love. She also knew that the person shouting for her was her father. That dream, and our visit, awoke something in her. It was no longer a this-feels-familiar, but a straight-up I-remember-this-former-life. It was the 18th century. She explained how her family was very wealthy and had a high standard to live up to. Everything she wore, said, ate, and how she did it was all scrutinized. She was the youngest of three daughters, but she was also very different. She was bored with the life that they lived. She didn't want to sit in a room all day, watching dancers or play the piano. Everything she did was to prepare to be a good wife and secure her future with another wealthy man, so she didn't tarnish her family's name. The problem with that, though, was that she already had eyes for someone else. She was in love with Felix. His family owned a shoe repair store, and he was very creative with making musical instruments out of anything. She remembered being impressed and explained how he made a bell or chime for blades of grass and a few of her hairpins. She was infatuated with him, and she knew that she wanted to be with him for the rest of her life, but her parents wouldn't allow it because his family was far from the wealthy status that they required. She was told that she would marry a friend of her father's. She and Felix met in secret to enjoy each other's company, and try to plot out how to run away together. But the part in the dream was the last time she would ever see Felix. Her father caught them after warning him multiple times, and she was forced to stay inside after that until she was married off. 
The painting was done by her arranged husband a day after their wedding. As Elaine recounted these details to me, I watched her smile and become red in the face as she talked about Felix, how dull she looked talking about her daily life, and then the tears began when she talked about her wedding and posing for the painting. You could see the pain in her eyes. I was at a loss for words watching her explain all this. She never really had an interest in that kind of thing, so I doubted that she had just randomly read a history book or researched this, planning this whole scenario out. But if none of that happened, then what other explanation is there? After we finished, I told her that we needed to keep track of all this and to look into it further, when we returned home in a few days. She assured me that she could never forget it again. Fast forward to when we did return home, this had definitely piqued my interest, so I wanted to look further into it. We went to the library and looked through old archives, and we even went through some shady third-party site similar to Ancestry to find more about Arabella. The surface info we found about her and her family was damn near identical from what she told me. We located her old family mansion, we found pictures of them all with names underneath, one of which said Arabella. Before we looked into the mansion more, Elaine was able to accurately describe the layout of the house. She could even describe the hidden pantries, the color of the drapes that hung in the window, and even described how there was always a faint scent of rose that lingered in the halls, due to the oils and cleaners their housekeepers used. Granted, that wasn't found online, but all the details that she gave, even things like how the place smelled just flowed out of her, like she was giving a tour right there, and the physical details were eerily accurate. Again, Arabella's home was in a state that she had never been to as Elaine, so we couldn't find any other explanation other than she had to have lived a past life. The only disappointing part was that we didn't find much information on Felix. We found an old shoe business and the last name of the family which Elaine remembered, but there were no real records following them. We couldn't find anything about their lives, nor obituaries. I think that kind of cemented the idea for us that he was not one of the popular and wealthy families, so there just wasn't much on them. But we could at least confirm that they were real. Since this revelation, Elaine has really embraced her past life. She enjoys talking about it with others, and has even started drawing a lot more. She's an amazing artist, with anything from oils, charcoals, or even just pencil and paper. And seeing her draw these gorgeous old dresses and homes, with statues strewn about the yard, it's obvious where her inspiration is coming from. I always thought the idea of reincarnation was an interesting subject, but nothing ever swayed me in one way or another. Until this event. Now... I can say that I, without a doubt, believe that it is absolutely possible.
for about four years. I worked for a buffet-style diner that was open until around 10 p.m., but closing at 10 meant that we usually left at around 11.30 or later. The job was not glamorous. I was a back-end worker, so I mostly just did the dishes and some of the prep work, which at a buffet is an absolutely ludicrous amount of work. Being that I did a lot of the back-end cleaning, I was also assigned trash, meaning that I had to pull all the bags of trash from the front and back, and then take them to the dumpster out back. Again, not glamorous. Nothing that I would consider an entertaining job, but it was a job that paid okay, so I did it to the best of my ability. One night, around 11pm, I was doing my standard routine. I bundled up all the trash bags, got all the bins emptied, and headed out the back door of the restaurant to take the first load of bags to the dumpster. As I was heading back in to grab the second load of bags... I noticed that a pickup truck was pulling into the lot slowly. I didn't pay it much mind, mostly because I was busy and really didn't care. I went back in and grabbed more bags, went outside and tossed them into the dumpster. When I turned back to head back in and get the rest of the trash, I heard a voice shout out, Hey! I, I paused thinking that there was no way they were possibly talking to me. But then they shouted, Hey, you, come here. As I turned and looked over at the truck, the guy opened the door and stepped out, just kind of standing there waving me over. Again, I just stood there and stared at this guy. He looked like a linebacker. He was covered in tattoos with what looked like a gnarly scar on his face. I would say that if I had seen this guy in a movie, he would be playing that part of Mafia Enforcer, if that makes sense. The guy again motioned for me to come over to him, which removed any doubt about whether he was talking to me or not. I cautiously approached him, maintaining a bit of a distance. He then asked me, Hey, are you Frank? His voice was cold and it honestly sent chills down my spine. But I am not Frank. Far from it. My name is David. And for the first time in my life, I was glad that my name was David. I shook my head and told that guy that I wasn't Frank. And for some reason I even said, Oh, no, sorry. My name is David. As if me and this threatening man were going to become close friends. Without missing a beat, he cut me off and said, Well, if you don't want to end up skinned and dumped in the river, I highly recommend you go back inside, and uh, don't come back outside for a while. His tone was flat, matter-of-fact, and like he was simply explaining something to me. I stood there for a second and kind of stared at him. I had heard what he said but it took me several seconds for the words to actually register. I mean, who says something like that? Of course, the look in his eyes was dead serious, which kind of set me into motion. In a bit of a daze, I nodded and said, Right, 
Yeah, uh, okay. The whole way back into the restaurant, I expected to feel this guy grab me, or a knife to get stabbed in my back or something, but it didn't happen. I went back inside, and I decided that my last load of trash could wait for a little while. After I got back inside and did my dishes and finished up my other duties, I started thinking about things and realized that I didn't work with anyone named Frank. There was no one in the building named Frank. So, who was that guy looking for? I even asked my shift lead if anyone worked there named Frank, and she told me that there were no employees with that name. I told her that I was approached by someone out back that was looking for a Frank, leaving out the threatening-to-be-skinned part, and she told me that it was probably just a drug deal, and to forget that it happened. Which, thanks, that helped quite a bit. Anyways, I never saw that guy again and thankfully I don't work that job anymore. The fact that I did work there for four years is crazy, and I do have some other stories that I may send your way at some point, but for now, I think this is the best one to put out there. I hope that the mystery man was able to find Frank, or I guess depending on his motives, that he didn't find Frank? Either way, Thanks to him for scaring the hell out of me that night. I was nearly abducted early one morning. In June of 2015, I was a single woman settling into a new apartment with my dog. The location was close to major shopping centers and only a few blocks away from the interstate highway, but was somehow pretty quiet and felt more residential. Perhaps that's why I didn't feel particularly uncomfortable taking my frail elderly cocker spaniel out for an early morning potty break while it was still dark outside. She was suffering from kidney disease, so she needed to get outside at odd times. The street in front of the apartment building was not very well lit, there's a single street light right at the corner, and then no further lighting until well down the street. Parking is only allowed on the side of the street directly in front of my building. As the building was pet-friendly, management had installed a waste bag dispenser and receptacle at the edge of the property furthest away from the building, and usually I had no concerns about walking over to it to toss my dog's bags, even in the dead of night. I felt fairly safe. Besides, throwing the waste bag away in my inside bin made my unit stink. I work from home as a telecommuter, and once my dog and I got back inside, I needed to log into the system to start work. I didn't want to sit and smell dog waste until my morning break, when I could take the trash out to the dumpster. As I was standing in the front yard with her and waiting for her to finish, an older model boxy maroon sedan turned the corner and drove past us down the street, turned around in the cul-de-sac, and then came back toward us. This wasn't weird to me as people can only park on the one side of the street, so it's not uncommon for drivers to just do this to get turned around to park. Being new to the building, I figured this person was another resident of the complex, 
and no alarm bells were going off yet. However, that changed when the car stopped and parked in the dark area of the street, near the dog waste station, instead of pulling up in front of the apartments. There were no other cars parked on the street that particular morning, and where this car stopped was not close to any other buildings or entrances. Although I thought this seemed strange, I still wasn't all that concerned. Maybe the driver was just coming home from an overnight shift and wanted to park their car in an area they felt would be shaded from the daytime sun. Still, I kept it in my peripheral vision. A lanky man stepped out of the vehicle, tall with scruffy dark blonde hair. He looked to be in his 30s, wearing jeans, a white t-shirt, and what looked in the dim light to be an army green light jacket or shirt. He was smoking a cigarette and didn't approach me, but instead stood in the darkened street next to his driver's side door and stared across the apartment building's yard toward the parking lot. Okay, I thought. He must have a girlfriend or wife that doesn't like him smoking, so he's hiding while finishing his smoke in the hopes that he can't be seen from their windows. Maybe that's also why he parked in probably the darkest part of the street as well. By this time, my little dog had finished reading all of the p-mail in the yard and done her business, and I was fumbling with trying to open the waste bag that I'd brought with us. Finally managed to defeat the static cling keeping it closed, I slid it over my hand like a glove and bent down to pick up my dog's gift. That's when I noticed the man was no longer standing by his driver's side door, but had instead moved to the back of his car to stand by his vehicle's trunk, still in the street. He was still staring toward the parking lot across the yard, and perhaps it was simply paranoia kicking in, but I got the sense that he was watching me from the corner of his eye. His posture seemed kind of stiff, not like he was just casually looking off into the distance. It felt predatory. Now, the alarm bells are starting to go off. If he were just innocently finishing a cigarette before going into the building, then wouldn't he be standing on the boulevard where it's safer, instead of the middle of the street where he's at risk of getting hit by a passing car? As previously mentioned, I don't like disposing of dog waste in my house trash, but my normal routine of walking to the waste bin at the edge of the yard would have taken me right past this guy, who, if he was truly planning to grab me, would only be a few short steps away. I decided to just deal with a little bit of stink in my apartment until I could get the trash out later. I quickly tied off the bag, scooped my dog up into my arms, and hurried back to my unit. My windows faced the street. In fact, where I'd been out in the yard with my dog was directly in front of my own balcony, so as soon as I got back inside, I ran to my window to see what the guy was doing. That's when his intentions became frighteningly clear. While I'd run back into the safety of my apartment, he'd gotten back into his car and taken off down the street. I looked outside just in time to watch him blow through the stop sign and make a left around the corner squealing his tires as he headed toward the main arterial road. That's when I realized that he was waiting for me to walk past him. 
What he'd intended to do after that, I don't know. But had he grabbed me, he could have been out on the interstate and headed out of the state within minutes. I lived in that apartment for another five years, and I never saw him or his car again. Attached is an aerial view of the area for reference. I've added some colorized markings to show where I was, where the car parked, etc. Hey there, friends. I hope that you enjoyed this collection of scary stories on this episode of the As the Raven Dreams podcast. If you did, make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever platform that you're utilizing. And if the platform you are on has a rate the podcast option, please consider doing so. Those ratings push the podcast into the algorithm, and we all know how the algorithm controls everything, so... Yeah. I also do have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash asthereavendreams, you can support the channel further. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get early access to all of my content in audio format. The content's a little different, as it's based on what I upload to my YouTube side, but it's the same stories. Just in different collections of stories than how they're presented here. Speaking of stories, if you have one you would like to submit to me, please... Go to AsTheRavenDreams.com and click the button in the middle of the screen that says Submit Your Story. Now, these stories are mostly sourced by listeners, so let's keep the podcast alive. If you've got one, I'd love to read it. Anyways, friends, I hope you're all having a beautiful day and a lovely week. And I hope I see you again very soon. But until then, remember you're loved, you're valid, you're important. You're the best you that you can be. Never forget it. And until next time, much love and sleep well.